Hi everyone. Hi. I'll quickly scan around. Hi, hi, hi. Wow. God's on this side. <laughs> wow, something's happening over here. Yep, I got it. How are you? All good? What, isn't it great when the mayhem comes up here, the kids, isn't it fantastic? If we ever saw a kids thing that went exactly the way the adults conceptualised it, <laughs> never happens, that's the fun of it, isn't it? It's great. Of course, our, our theme this morning is worship. I don't know how, after how many years in this church, I've never actually preached. What is my thing? Worship, um, what I've taught in Bible college for, wow, nearly 30 years now, I've been teaching this stuff through the last 30 years of the church. As I mentioned, the last time I preached, the changes that have occurred in the church over the last 30 years in relation to worship and music and everything. So what you're going to get is a quick 20, 25 minute. There's two main kind of points that I'm hoping I can leave with you today that will help you I just challenge you, I guess. The whole idea is it wasn't me that came up with this, changing the status quo. Where is he? Was it, was it you, Jono, that came up with that? Yeah, so it's his fault. <laughs> that we're, we're, we're saying, let's be bold enough, because for church especially, we come in, it's just so easy to do everything in a routine, isn't it? I mean, Christianity works beautifully in routine. So when you get everything into routine, what about even like, whether it's your prayer life, whether it's your reading, whether it's being nice, it works better in a routine more than it does random. Um, we spoke about that last time, you know, the idea of obedience and obeying and listening to the voice of God in every circumstance. Christianity works a lot easier as a religion than it does as a living relationship with a living God. Um, so we've always got to be prepared to change the status quo so that we don't get stuck in a rut. So like I said, it's his fault and that's what I'm going to have a go at with worship. Um, just a little thing, Karen was all prepared to come down. We've been hit with the flu. I've had it last week, so I guess I'm not contagious, but she's, it's, every good husband passes things on to their wife, don't they? <laughs> <laughs> so she's at home in better wreck. One little bit of news about Karen. Um, she's, do you know BSF, Bible Study Fellowship? Karen has always been interested in that. It's, I think it's a Baptist thing that started, but it's, it's all around the world, and it's... Um, ladies that get together and do Bible studies at all strange hours through the week at night or early on Saturday morning and that. Karen is now a leader in Bible study fellowship. I mean, from the girl that came to this church, yeah, Megan's laughing, the, the, the girl that came to this church that was always kind of in my shadow, well, get out of the way, Tex. <laughs> it's just fantastic to watch what God, do you know what she's doing right now, even though she's crook? She's sitting up in bed with the Bible and she's actually doing, it's like Bible college. It's just under the level of pretty much Bible college. Just so wonderful that even at old age, <laughs> just to see the change in Karen because of the word of God, like nothing else but her heart, just the word of God has struck her heart. She's got into it. Um, and it's just wonderful to see how that change has occurred. And like I said, I'm stepping out of the way. It's just great to see her powering through. So little bit of news but of course that's always been my heart it's about the Word of God it's got to be the Word of God the Word of God the Word of God what is the Word of God this is one of the typical scriptures about worship that I'm sure you've all heard you've read especially the last little line 
God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. I mean, you know, every, <coughs> excuse me, every worship conference or worship teaching, <coughs> excuse me, that I've ever been to, this is one of the primary scriptures that's read out, but it's just that end bit. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. And it's so easy to take a scripture like this and make it so heavenly, isn't it? Worship in spirit and truth. I mean, you know, if we all closed our eyes and I began to speak with the right tone and began to talk about worshiping God, it would be very easy for us to lock into a very, you know what I'm talking about, that devotional, prayerful, deep, heavenly-minded thought about God is spirit in heaven, of course, and all around. So therefore, worship is this deep spiritual connection between me and God. And that's what came, a lot of that was really ram-fed into the church through the 80s as music and contemporary music began to explode in the church. The high-minded spirituality, and a lot of it come, I just looked at you, George, and I thought, South Africa, mate, South Africa. Thank you very much, Barb. Um, excuse me. Out of Rima Church, Ray McCauley's church in northern suburbs of um, had a massive church, a thing called the School of Psalmody. And it was one of the classic places where a deep teaching about the spirit, spiritualizing worship and music and connecting psalmody, the psalms, you might have heard. Some of the terms that I'll use today are terms you might have heard. But what it did is in the 80s, it began to create this very heavenly-minded concept of worship, that worship was a deep spiritual connection, and we almost then got to the point of saying, and I've got it in, I've got a, I've got a whole library of books from the 80s that I've kept that all had this stuff in it, that when we are truly connected to, with God in spirit through worship, that is when I am the most intimate with God. Now that, I mean, book after book after book, songs were written. I enter into the throne room. Have you ever heard that kind of language? You know, we enter into the throne room. We go heavenly minded with our music as we worship God. A lot of it was even taken from the idea of angels because you open the book of Revelation and there it talks about all the heavenly beings worshiping before the throne. Little interesting point. It never says they sing. It only says they say. Isn't that interesting? We always have this concept of heaven and the angels sing, 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 la, la, la. It never actually says that angels sing. Isn't that interesting? That's just a little human thought, just to throw that in. So through the 80s and into the 90s, a whole thing moved of spiritualizing, if I call it, over-spiritualizing worship. And so what I'm going to kind of do today is play with that and mess with you a little bit. The biggest stumbling block to gaining a clear understanding of what the Bible teaches about worship is worship. <laughs> a little play on words. That is what we all now consider is the closest thing to what worship is. It's especially if you've ever been in a big church where this is like hardcore. <laughs> oh, yeah where you close your eyes, or unless you're reading the words, but you lift your hands, and the idea that a whole congregation would have hands lifted like that. I remember as a worship leader, 
up front when you're in a big congregation, like I've you know, led thousands at um, youth alive rallies and things like that, and, and even in smaller churches, you, you have one eye open, you're sort of trying to be spiritual, but you want to see how many hands are raised. <laughs> it's almost like a game of bingo. Because the more hands that are raised, the more spiritual the worship is. Now, I mean, that sounds a little bit sarcastic, but there's a certain element of truth to that. Yes, the more hands are raised, the more the congregation could be engaged. But what began to hit me as I began to look at the theology of worship, as I began to study what the Bible actually teaches about worship, I began to realise there was a bit of a little disconnect here. And I said at the other time I preached, we can lift our hands and sing all we want. It says nothing about my day-to-day -day walk. It says nothing about my obedience to God day by day. And this is what I began to discover. There could be a two-faced thing going on there. <laughs> I could stand in front of thousands and lead them in incredible worship because of my talent, yes, my gift in the spirit even. And I could do, you know, you could do wonderful things and people say, oh, that was wonderful. I could walk up the stage and do whatever I want. And then Jimmy Swaggart fell. And then another televangelist fell and all of a sudden we began to see the cracks in it all because no matter how great you might be publicly, that is not what you are privately. And I got so deeply convicted that it turned my whole life upside down and inside out and back to front and you've caught the tail end of that. So the biggest problem we have is what I now call the worship industry because what I did is I googled worship and that was one of the first photos that came up. All of the photos about worship were hands in the air in a large congregation. We have come, we have become completely besotted with the idea that the bigger the church, where'd that come from? Find that in the Bible. The bigger the church, the more spiritual the music is, the better the music is. Do you know, there used to be that people chose what church they were going to join because of the preacher. Doesn't happen anymore now. The number one thing that people join a church for is the music. We have come besotted, bewitched by the consumer industry, and it's besotted and bewitched our concept of what worship is. Thank goodness it's not what worship is, or else we'd be in real trouble. <laughs> you know what I mean? We've created this industry around something. If that really is what worship is, if singing before God is really what the depth of what worship is, man, we'd be in trouble because we've butchered it. Instead, worship is over here somewhere. What we've created is okay, people. We're not demonising music. In fact, at the end, we'll come around and we'll go, oh, okay, that makes perfect sense now. But it does take a journey. Status, changing the status quo starts with pushing the refresh button. So all when I teach this in college, sometimes it's over 13 weeks or, you know, it's a long period of time. And the students have paid or they've been paid for and they've got to sit there for 13 weeks and listen to me. And it's awesome if you're a teacher because it means at the start you can bash them up, bloody their brain, ugh, make them spiritually insensible and then start building the building blocks. And over 13 weeks I have seen, I have seen lives completely changed and I've got letter after letter after email after assignment of students all around Australia but particularly well, no, that's true, because online, all around the world, honestly, that after doing the full teaching of understanding, they're still singing, they're still leading music in their church, but their whole life has changed because of what the Bible says about worship and having the opportunity 
to push the refresh button and allow my mind to be changed. So all I'm asking is the next 15 minutes, <laughs> if you just allow me to poke at a few things, squish it and explain a few things, but there's no way, you're gonna to have to go and study it. And this is what I said to every student, check me. Don't, don't take what I say ever as truth. Go and check it, read the scriptures, see what, and that scripture I said, does anyone know where those who worship God will worship in spirit and truth? Can anyone tell me which conversation Jesus was having when he said that? Isn't that interesting? I, it's not a trick question. Because it's most of the worship scriptures, it's only mentioned about six or so times in the New Testament. In correct context. Um, most of the time worship is mentioned, this is what we've done in the worship industry, is we've pulled it out of context. What's the first thing you learn in any good Bible study? What is it? <laughs> never, never take anything out of context. You must read at least the whole chapter, if not the chapter before, if not the whole book. Look at that verse and then work out what's being said. It's when Jesus was talking to the woman at the well of Samaria. It has nothing to do with singing. Absolutely nothing. What they're talking about is the Messiah and the future. And what they're talking about is on this mountain in Samaria is where true worship occurs. Because in those days, worship was all about the temple. All about one site that was the holy site. And the Samaritans said, and that's remember she said, on this mountain, oh, we've been worshipping on this mountain for years. And Jesus said, and then they go, oh, but I'm on my way up to Jerusalem. You cannot sit in Samaria and do the trip that Jesus was doing without considering where was he going? Up to the temple. What was he passing? A dog's temple. That's how the Jews saw the Samaritans. It was a, their, their idea of a temple at Mount Gerizim. The true temple and true worshippers worship in Jerusalem. When you get all of that into context and then you read all of the Gospel of John and the two main themes in the Gospel of John are spirit and truth, the Holy Spirit, what do we say? I am the way, the truth and the life. The Holy Spirit and truth are themes in the book of John. When you put that scripture into context, it's, it's, talking, it's got nothing to do with music. And the whole argument there is worship in a temple is about to cease because the Messiah has come. And all of a sudden, theologically, you go, oh, yeah, of course. <laughs> and you move on in the book of John. It's not as if it's irrelevant, but it's just part of a big picture. It's just one scripture, you know what I mean? So you can't pluck that out and all of a sudden, like I said, at the beginning of a worship session, read it out as if our music, in here, hear what I'm saying? Our music this morning is reaching, you know, completely out of context. This is what's so important about Bible study. So here we go. A little teaser, the Bible never says A, to stand, B, to lift up our hands, or C, to sing in worship. Which one would you reckon? Hmm. Which one would the Bible never say? To stand and worship, to lift up our hands and worship, or to sing in worship? It's a trick question. None of them. <laughs> this is one of the most profound things. All you've got to do is get a concordance out and start looking at the words for worship. There's only a few of them. It's not like you have to be a Greek or Hebrew scholar to work it out Greek in the Old and New Testament. The Bible never says to stand and worship. The Bible never says lift up your hands and worship. And the Bible never says to sing and worship. 
That's profound, isn't it? Because you would swear. I, I did this, you know, Richmond AOG, it's one of the cornerstone churches of the AOG. Back when I was seen as a guru in this stuff, as a musician, they got me in to do their creative ministries team. The creative ministries team was 200 people. And they had me in as a guest preacher, right? This is, is dead true, you know me, so you know how stupid I am. I worked up and I, I got the microphone, I said, how many times do you reckon the Bible says to stand, lift up holy hands and worship the Lord? You know, and all these people, how many times, how many times? Oh, 15, 100, and all these people like bingo game are yelling out, you know, because, and they're all getting carried, you're standing. I said, the Bible never says to stand and lift up holy hands. You can hear a pin drop. Did I ever get asked to go back there? <laughs> I don't know why, but I lost them right in the first sentence. <laughs> You're my friend, so I can do that here. <laughs> to stand, isn't that profound? If I had the word praise, no problem. You see, what we do in music is praise. It's the biblical concept of praise. The moment you open the Bible and do a study of praise, it all happens. Music, 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 school of psalm. Music, 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 music. But that's praise. Why did we come up with worship? And now, if you are in the AOG, and I'm not looking anywhere in particular, those who used to be in the AOG that aren't anymore in the AOG, <laughs> around the room, this is, you know what we write on our song lists? We used to have praise, the fast songs, and worship, the slow songs. <laughs> so we narrowed it down even more. <laughs> worship is not just music, it's only when you're doing it slowly. <laughs> Isn't that funny? Isn't that, where do we get this from? Where do we come up with, and yet honestly, if I walked in, we're not going to name them, but if I walked into any of the large, big churches, even just in Melbourne, chances are that's what's written on their song sheet. The fast songs of praise, it's still what's considered the biblical idea of what we do in church. It's profound. I mean, we're laughing about it, but the bottom line is, it's scary. It's scary. Worship in the Bible is like a two-headed coin, and this is the first concept. It's muddy. The whole idea of worship in the Bible is muddy. You can't get a full concept of it if you just do a quick study. You've got to go into it in depth. And that's why it's been so easy to be turned into something that's not, because it's muddy. The other thing is, I did this trick. I walked into Kurong Bookshop and were at the big word bookstores. I went up to the people behind the store, the shelf, and I said, can you take me to the books that have the theology of worship? What? The what? They, they'd start walking because they heard the word worship and of course they're taking you over to the CDs, all the music CDs. Said, so, no, 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 the books on the theology of worship. Oh, right, theology. So they start walking you towards the theology section where we've got baptism, communion. Yeah, I mean, think of that. Shelves and shelves and books and PhDs all over the place to do with theology. And then they start looking and they... We don't have any theology books on worship. And it's true, even today. There's some good books being written about worship, but very few theologians. Now some people are starting to do PhDs, like serious study in worship. 
I'll argue a lot of their premises home because they're still coming to the idea of worship with a bottom line premise that it's about how much we love God in our devotion. More about that later. It's really, it's really interesting. It's really interesting. We've got to get rid of that and say, what does the Bible, what does the Bible teach about worship? To two-headed coin. <clears throat> it's so hard. In other words, you've got to have, you've got to be a little bit schizophrenic. You know what you're saying? Shut up. You've got to have the ability to see two sides coming together, like a coin. They're very powerful things, but you must have both sides. And the two become one. Give me one coin, but it's got two sides. The first side means this, and this is why you can't stand to worship. In the Bible, there is only one way you worship, and that is on your knees. But really, the best way is when you're actually on your gut, on the ground. Now, many of you have probably been in a prayer meeting and you've ended up there. I've done a lot of good floor time. We used to call it floor time. Floor time's good, isn't it? If you've done some floor time. In fact, do you remember the old churches that used to have little things because you used to kneel and it had a little cushion? Yeah. Of course, we're so spiritual with our music now, we don't have to kneel. We worship on the inside. How's that for sarcasm? Isn't it funny? We no longer kneel. We no longer consider that kneeling is any part of it. We bear it. We just don't do it. Imagine it. Youth Alive Rally. You know, thousands and thousands of people packed in the big area. Now we're all going to kneel. I mean, I've seen it happen. I've, I've, I've done it. It's powerful. But kneeling, in, the, in it, it's interesting. Just something we don't do. And yet, biblically, the first meaning and the most common and the most powerful, obvious meaning, in fact, the very word, those who worship in spirit and truth, this is the word he's talking about. Bowing down, personal devotion and pledging allegiance to one that is higher. Now, look what I've put, something or someone. It is not about God. It can be, but in these cultures, you would bow down to your boss. A wife would maybe even bow down to the husband in certain circumstances. Slaves would bow down. Bowing down in these ancient cultures was part of life. Do you know James, when he was martyred in the temple, was called camel knees because he, he prayed in the temple so much. James, the brother of Jesus, the one that wrote the book of James, that he had calluses on his knees because there was no concept of him praying or coming before God without it actually being on his knees. First challenge, maybe this week, just try dropping to the knees in your prayer time if you don't. Some of you probably already do. So that's the first meeting. And now I'm calling heads because it's, it's heads. Why? I don't know. But this is the one that comes into trouble. This is the one that gets us into trouble. There is a second word and a second context and a second meaning of worship. I call it tales. Pretty obvious reasons. The work or service of priests in religious duties at a temple or holy site. Wow, we've gone from just simply bowing down to the other side of the coin, and it's, a, it's a, now, I want you to think of a priest inside a temple. Yeah, 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 chanting, slashing the throats of little buttons, blood everywhere, water, carry the blood to the altar. Do a day's work, and by the end of it, you need a shower, fella. You ain't coming home to my tent until you've had a shower. 
It was a dirty, grotty, messy, filthy, religious work. The actual word in the Old Testament that is used is orbat, and it's the word for work. The word in the New Testament is the word service. Latria, latria serve. To serve, to service, to service, to serve. So whenever you put those two words that mean work, serve, into a religious context, we call it worship. We do. This is where you're already going, huh? What's going on here? We've got one over here, all through the Bible, to bow down. Old Testament, New Testament, bow down. Never changes. Bow down. Pledge allegiance. But on this side, in the Old Testament, we have the priests, the Levites, bloody messy. And the funny thing about this is only the Levites could do it. It wasn't everybody. Isn't it strange? It was only one tribe were allowed to do it. They were there to work on, here it comes, behalf of the people. They were priests. They were there to be on behalf of the people and do the work of slaughtering the lambs and the sacrifice. We're beginning to see a picture for But that is a completely different thing. Chanting, yeah, yeah, yeah. But that one, Old and New Testament, what happens in the New Testament? This gets dealt with. Jesus fulfilled this. That's what the book of Hebrews is all about, my favourite book in the Bible. Jesus fulfilled all of the Old Testament priestly service to become the one high priest who would be in heaven to this day. You've heard me preach this many a time. Making intercession on behalf of the people because all of that Old Testament rubbish is finished with. He personified it. He lived it and went into the throne room and didn't have to sprinkle his own blood. Why? Because he was a living sacrifice. Isn't that beautiful? Woohoo! Over here, what's it, what's it, what's it? No, no problem. Bow down. Over here, chamber, finished. Silence. But we've still got these two words and these two contexts when we read the New Testament. And this is where the water gets muddy. I'm going to take you back. There's the two of them there. Both contexts are clearly supported in the Old and New Testament, and that's something that's very important. The main two Greek and Hebrew words work right through both Testaments, even in the Greek Septuagint, for those who've done the studies over here, the Greek Old Testament. We know what we're talking about. Even in the, Old, the Greek Old Testament, the same words carry through. So that's pretty straightforward. Okay, so the first one, to bow down. The second one, to serve, service. Okay, here's that problem. Some translations call the first one to bow down or to worship. And that's a, that's a reasonable translation. Because why? Because that's what worship means. But when you come over here, some translations say to serve or service. That's good. But when you call priestly sacrifice worship, and then over here you're calling bowing down worship, we're in trouble because in English we don't know the difference. And where the Bible and Paul is talking about this one, very few times, but incredibly important times, the Bible talks about both and separates both. Us in English, uh, we, we can't get it. We can't see it. 
Then came the NIV. <laughs> you know, I'll bag the NIV. This is why. In Exodus, the ten... Oh, what is it? God's most favourite rules? <laughs> the ten most favourite rules of God. What's the first one? You shall not have any other God before me. And then what's he following up with? You shall not bow down nor serve them. That is in the first of the Ten Commandments. Is that, does that mean it's pretty much God's favourite? Top ten of the favourite? What's it saying? To an Old Testament person, Moses just brought them out of Egypt. Temples everywhere. Worship, sacrifice, blood everywhere. Nothing to do with the Hebrews. God was just about to give them the, te the, the tabernacle, the temple worship system, and the, divide the tribes up. It's an incredibly important time in the life of Israel. And God is saying, you shall not, you're going into foreign lands, you've come from foreign lands, I've got to reach, push your refresh button, Israel. I've brought you out of, through the desert, I've brought you to the mountain, I'm pushing the refresh button. You will have no other God before me. No other God? What do you mean? There's thousands of gods in Egypt. I am the only one true God. I am. You, you get the picture. You shall not bow down. I go, well, yeah, worship. Nor, get the picture now? Serve them. What's he saying? You're not going to have personal devotion and bow down to them. Nor will you allow sacrifice, work, temples, rituals. And isn't that what you see all through the Old Testament? They kept reverting back, marrying into other cultures, and reverting back. God was never angry about this. God never, ever, ever got angry over this because it's either come easy go. What you say and what you sing and what you pray, not going to make him angry. But you start introducing Old Testament rubbish. You start introducing other forms of sacrifice. And what does God get? Angry. You move into idolatry. What does God get? Angry. All of the things that God got so cut up about was this. Was this whole idea of temple worship system. Now, you already know the answer why. Why? Because it was the shadow of his son, Jesus. See, now it makes sense. When you read the whole of the Old and then into the New Testament and Paul, this, this was a perfect, this changed my life. In fact, I'm getting even really emotional talking about it. How powerful it is to read the whole flippin' Bible 285 times worship is mentioned. To read the whole Bible and separate the context. And, all, and, and it just becomes so clear. God gets so cut up when you mess with something to do with his son. Something to do with what he has set up in his word as a specific, specific purpose that his son would fulfill. Sure, you can sing all you want, you can bow, you can praise, you can devote, you can pray. This is what I'm saying. You have a life of devotion. We, that should be expected. But if that life of devotion turns into, and probably the right word would be a, a bastardization, like a, a, a manipulation of stuff that he has set up in all eternity for his son to fulfil, and you're messing with hell. That is why Paul said to the Galatians, you stupid Galatians, are you going to finish in the law what Christ gave you in the Spirit? Remember Paul, how cut he was. 
whenever they went back to the Old Testament ritual, and yet so much of all the teaching I have in my library since the 1990s about music comes from the Old Testament. Why? Because nothing in the New Testament about it. There doesn't need to be because it's expected you'll sing to God. Talk to a Middle Eastern person, whether they're a Jew or a Muslim or whatever. Middle Eastern people know how to dance and sing before they're God. That's just not a problem. It's over here that problems occur. Make sense? So there we go. We've covered. Oh, okay. It's the New International Version that blew this. When they translate the Ten Commandments, they go, you shall not bow down, but they call this worship. And that's where the trouble begins. It creates an incredible muddy, and the New International is a new of new. And, in, and it's the main Bible the Pentecostals used when they came up with this teaching. So in English, when you preach out of the New International Version, fine for most things, but never go near worship. Go to the old, or not the old, the new King James, because it translates the words. This is the other one. Romans 12.1. To offer up your bodies. You've heard this, haven't you? These are all scriptures we know. To offer up your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. The new King James translates the word and says this, which is your reasonable service. The NIV goes, this is your true and prosperous worship. Once again, I've stood at worship conferences about music in the church, and this is another scripture we read out. Offer up your bodies, a living sacrifice. See this whole holy lifting up. This is your worship before God to offer up your body, a living sacrifice. Get it? And we'd be singing songs, thinking heavenly thoughts about offering up our lives before God. And we stand in the congregation and we offer our lives up before God. We're missing the whole point. Paul has just done a whole teaching on, the, on, on chapter 9 through to chapter 11 in the book of Romans on the Jews. He opened up that chapter 9 and he used the same word and he said to the Jews was given the temple, the sacrifice system. Read it, dudes. Um, opening of chapter 9. It's profound. He says to the Jews, to my brethren, was given this system. He goes through three chapters of talking about the Jews and then he says, Therefore, I beseech you, brethren, by the mercies of God, offer up your bodies now, a living sacrifice. This is your temple service. It's awesome. Put this way, I got excited. Paul knows this stuff. He knew this stuff. The writer, writer, of, writer of Hebrews knew this stuff. They're telling us, Jesus has done it all for us. You no longer have a sacrifice system. Why? Because the price has been paid, the sacrifice has been done. Now, all you can do is offer up your body a living sacrifice. And this is where he's playing with the words. Jesus is now in heaven, the first ever living sacrifice. No more blood will be spilt. It's awesome. We're clean. We don't need priestly robes. There's no nap. It's all done. There was no blood spilt that wasn't spilled on the get it? It's clean. It's clean. We have now the bow down principles, but now over here, and this is why I suggest just be careful in English if you're doing a word study in worship. 
Both contexts for worship overlap with the ancient concept of bowing down. And this is where I'm going to finish with the second concept and we're going to have some interactive fun. And you're all going, get me the coffee, text. <laughs> Won't take long, but we're going to have some fun. The ancient concept of bowing down before a master or a king. I don't know whether you're a monarchist for the moment, just drop it, whether you are or aren't a monarchist. We're going to go back into Kenyan. As a sign of respect, it is still visible in many cultures. <coughs> oh, poo text. Just kicked over my water. Clumsy human being. <laughs> yeah, I'm okay. I'm sorry, I'm a bit hyper. <laughs> Parkinson's. Okay. So, we've now come to the idea of something's completely, the, the two sides of the coin. But what I want to come to now is this whole idea that when anyone in the old, old context are looking at the both sides, they understand the concept of, in fact, I'll click this, that. That's Queen Elizabeth's throne room. Isn't that beautiful? I mean, come on. Isn't that beautiful? Some of the most incredible jewels and wealth has been put into building that room. If you Google throne rooms, you'll see the Tibetan one, you'll see the Thailand one, you'll see that every little shebang have got throne rooms. Usually with two thrones, wife, husband, wife, you know, partners, all that business. Has anyone ever been to the Buck Palace to see this? Oh, Barb, you show off. You've seen that. Oh. When you walked in, did you go, oh. The whole place, yeah. But when you walked in there, was there anything special about the throne room? You don't have to... Just, no, it was just beautiful, yeah. Okay, I guess if the Queen was sitting there, eating some Vegemite sandwiches, you would have thought... Oh! Okay, so what I need... I'm sorry about spilling the water, but it's not as if it's the first time. Even I've spilled water many a times in here. What I need is someone to sit on my throne who would be quite good at acting like a king or queen. I don't care whether it's a king or queen. <laughs> this is going to be our throne. And we're only going to have one. So who'd be a really good person with a great memory of this, and with a great ability to act this, who'd like to be vocal enough this to sit on the throne? <laughs> oh, he's this. <laughs> yeah, careful. We don't want your throne breaking in the middle of this. So we have our Queen Elizabeth. Is Elizabeth your name? Yes. We have a Queen on your throne. So, first of all, how would I approach the throne? If I'm right back here, if I'm right back at that room, there'd be a knock at the door, wouldn't there? Can I open the door and approach your throne room on my own gumption? Could I just walk in and go, hi Liz! <laughs> Could I walk in and go, hello Queen, I've come to talk to you? No. I have to wait for someone to grab me, don't I? Get me. And I would begin to do the procession, the walk towards my Queen. And as I begin to do the walk, what would begin to happen to my posture? Like, for instance, if I did this. Australians, mate, we understand. <laughs> How are you going? Now listen, I want to talk to you about something. How's it going? If I began to walk with that kind of brash Australianness, what would happen? There'd be security guys on me. 
And the only way I've got to here is because my security's all been checked, I've been vetted, and all the guns that are up there pointing at me. <laughs> you know what I mean? So I begin to walk towards my queen. Do I just approach? What have I got to wait for? Could you acknowledge me, queen? So I get a little bow. She's not going to say, oh, g'day, Dex, I've been waiting for you. <laughs> she, she's just going to bow. Everything that she does, really, because the, the eyes on Tex or the eyes on the queen? The eyes are on the queen. <laughs> Look at that focus. Our eyes are on the queen. So everything that she does has to be very proven proper, doesn't it? Remember when our Prime Minister went to the queen and touched her on the back? Ooh, did the British tabloids hate us for that? I love playing out. It's all about respect. It's all about allegiance. Now, what would I say when I got to my queen? The first thing that I would say, yeah, hey. No. Would I say anything? No. Because I would have to wait for my queen to say something to me. Queen. Um, okay. So, you've got to make this up as you go, queen. I'm here. What would the queen maybe say to me? Are you approaching or are you... Or do it with the microphone. What, what might you say if you're going to say anything? I, I, thought, I thought that you said, I thought that you said, Your Majesty. I thought you said... Oh, okay. First. All right, so it's Your Majesty. And of course, I would do that with a... Good morning. But, good morning. <laughs> okay. But what sign might you be going before? What sign might you be doing? Like approach? In other words, she, I've got to get permission to approach the throne. I can't just gradually walk. Yeah, the knot, that's right. You did the knot, the knot, beautiful. So she did clean your knot. So I begin to approach. What now do I do? Down with this. What have I now done with the queen? Lift her up. Because the lower I get, the higher she gets. And she hasn't had to move. Isn't that clever? Think more about worship. That's why there's steps. So that whenever you approach, the first thing you do by the building of the room is to be humiliated and humiliate yourself and bow down. Now, if it was a serious... Um, anyone from um, a uh, Polynesian or any background, any connection to... Often when I talk this in Bible college, we have many islanders, and I used to say to the islanders, do you have a ch an elder chieftain? And, they, and you'd see their face change, they'd always be so happy. <laughs> and I'd say to them, How can, can, can you go up and talk to your chieftain? Have you ever been before your chieftain? You see their whole demeanor changes. And this is just a local chieftain. Just a local, you know, mayor of their city or something. Not even that, village. And I say to them, show me how you approach the chieftain. You don't approach the chieftain. Well, if the chieftain asks you to go, Oh, they just said there's only one way. How do Japanese give you a business card? Or Chinese give you a business card? They've just got to try and yeah. two hands. Two hands. Never with one hand. If ever you're in a shop and you're with a Chinese person and you want to show them respect, hand your money over with two hands. Now accept it? No? With two hands. No, two hands. You actually get two hands over it. It's a really bizarre. Look for that in culture. That is a classic example of all of this carrying on in day-to-day -day life. Japanese are great. They make fun of their movies and everything. But when you're amongst that kind of culture, it's a beautiful thing. It really is. Humility. I do it for people. Just 
We just did this little thing with your body language that shows them they're important and you care. Okay, so I'll now pull the coin. I'll come in for a close here. Um, the coin. What might she want to do? I've, I've obviously got an audience for a reason. It's not me. She's calling. So I now come here and I go, my queen, why did you call me here? The question would be, what do you want me to do? Close by, in the room. Ask me to do something, pick up a Bible or something like that. Bring me a Bible. Yes, my queen. Um, I love you. I pledge allegiance to you. I love you in my life, and I will go get you a Bible. Can I do this? No. <laughs> One of the guns went off. So I, I humbly move backwards, move backwards, move backwards. Bigger steps, getting further away from the glory. Come around the back. We have Bibles in this church anymore. Ah, uh, there. That's right. There. there. Excuse me. I'm just sitting in the throne room. Excellent. That was excellent that you said that for me. It actually made my purpose even better. That's a discussion again. <laughs> Can I approach Queen? Too fast. Blah, 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 blah. And what would I do? Would I go here, Carla? <laughs> offer it in a humble form. And I would come close to the queen. Would I touch her and go there, there, love? No chance. I'd pull back. Thank you. Now we're going to do scenario two. Could you give me that command again? Bring me a Bible. Would I love you? Queen. You are my fantastic Where's queen. Where's my Bible? You are my glorious queen. I write songs Three about you. I sing about you every Sunday. I you, you I will offer my life to you. Please get me a Bible now. I could be queen. I don't want to leave the throne. You get my picture, aren't you? I don't want to leave the throne. Please get me a Bible. But queen, I'm, I'm, you love people. You love everybody. You're such a glorious queen. Why would you be wanting me to leave your throne room? I like practical people who get me like this. <laughs> Much more. You got the picture, didn't you? Yeah. Where did I have to go to get the Bible? Outside of the throne room. This whole idea that the more I sit on my knees before my queen and tell her or him how wonderful they are, the more they get peed off. <laughs> Isn't that absurd? The more we sing and praise and lift our hands and tell God how great he is, the more peed off he gets if we're not leaving the church and doing what he does us to do. Woo! And that slams that whole worship industry because without the two sides of the coin, God's not interested. Queen, you are wonderful. Oh, by the way, what's the last thing the queen would say if I refused to get the Bible? Off with his... <laughs> Say it. Yeah, come on. Off with your head. Ah, oh, thank you. Thank you, Queen. Thank you. Completely unrehearsed, as you know. Okay, I'm finishing. I'm sorry I went a little bit long with this, but do you get the picture? Now you understand. Is singing important? My goodness, it's important. Singing is wonderful. God loves it when we sing. 
But the only loves it when we sing, when we've got the two sides of the coin working. If all we're doing is telling him how beautiful he is and then walking out and doing whatever we want with our life without obeying his voice, nah, we're missing the point. And, okay, so my biblical definition and we're finished. To bow down before God in honour, number one, keep doing that all the time. Then through the power of the Holy Spirit, supernaturally, his crunch point, you don't serve the king. You serve people. Because he's in the throne room. Isn't that interesting? The king of kings and the lord of lords has made that procession to the Father in heaven. Isn't that awesome? It's the same thing. He fulfilled the Old Testament by making that procession. He's, he's a living sacrifice. And God said, sit beside the throne until I make your enemies your footstool. That hasn't happened yet. The king of kings that we worship is living a living sacrifice in heaven. Woohoo! That's why there's angels in heaven to worship him, because we're not there. And when we die, we don't even really go there. That's another theology. We'll talk about that. And when he comes back, guess what? He's making another earth and another temple. There won't be... We're not going to heaven for eternity. We don't sing with the angels for eternity. My God, how boring. How boring would our life be? It's your hobbies, it's your loves, it's your interests that occur outside the church that is given to you because that's where he has fun. That's where he meets other people. That's where he does things different. In here we're all the same. Out there we're all different. And out there is where our true worship occurs. Because as we serve people, see now you're in you're a human. I can serve Liz as a human. I can serve Ali as a human father. I serve you as a human. And guess what I do? If I approach you like this, what have I just done to you? Made you bigger. I can walk up to a beggar in the street and by my attitude, I can make that beggar higher than me. That is true worship. And then guess what? I come into church and I sing about it. I served a beggar. I served a beggar. I saw him become a Christian through me serving him for six years. That's what we sing about. Get it? Our songs are too heavily minded sometimes. They're important. It's important that we sing the word of God. But our worship in here sometimes needs to become more earthy. Stories, testimony. This church is awesome. You live it. You breathe it. I'm sorry I've gone so long. I'm puffed and I'll leave it at that. John, can you pray? Oh, no, we do music. But he does music. Hey, doesn't it lift the chains off when you sing now? It makes more sense to sing. Get really excited. Clap. Jump up and down. Be loud. Because that's what praise. Thank you.